Are you a woman with Hashimoto's wondering how you can prevent heart disease or changes in your cholesterol as you go through perimenopause or menopause? Or maybe you're a woman with Hashimoto's wondering, you know, as I increase my protein intake, is this okay for my heart health? All these questions we're going to get answered by Dr. Michael Twyman today on Thyroid Strong Podcast. Dr. Michael Twyman, MD, is a heart attack prevention expert, a founder of Apollo Cardiology and a board-certified cardiologist. He is a decorated veteran. He now integrates the best of both conventional and functional medicine to get to the root cause of his patient's cardiovascular issues. Having worked with world-class athletes and high-performing entrepreneurial influencers, his mission is to educate his patients on how to live better and longer by optimizing their mitochondrial function to become heart attack proof. Dr. Michael Twyman, welcome to Thyroid Strong Podcast. Super excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. Yeah. So a lot of women with Hashimoto's get diagnosed as they're perimenopausal or going through menopause. And I'm going to share a case that came to my office. She's going through menopause, her cholesterol is going up and she goes vegan <laughs> and she's losing muscle mass and what's through COVID. So she's not getting as many steps or going to the gym like she normally does. And she's like, I did these dietary changes. I cut out all meat. I'm having brain fog. I don't feel great. And I got my blood work done again. And all the things are worse. Her LDL, her triglycerides. And she's like, I just cut out red meat and I thought I was doing all the right things. And I was like, did anyone talk to you? There potentially is a correlation because your hormones are changing as you're going through menopause. And she kind of gave me this deer in the headlight look. And she's like, what are you talking about? Can you, can you share that connection? Sure. So I mean, I tell people, you know, hormones are the signals of what's going on in your environment. And so if you're not optimizing your nutrition, your exercise, your stress management, and your sleep, your hormones are likely to be in the tank because your body's like, we got to keep the heart alive, the brain alive. Let's not worry so much about metabolism. Let's not worry so much about reproduction. And you're correct. You know, it's normal that over time in women, they eventually go through perimenopause and menopause and postmenopause. And estrogen is cardioprotective in part because it helps support nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a gas we'll probably be talking about that helps dilate your blood vessels. But estrogen will help with the LDL receptor. It also will help with the HDL metabolism. So there's no such thing as good cholesterol or bad cholesterol. There's just cholesterol. So I wanted to dissuade anybody of those myths, but there's different things that carry your cholesterol around the system. And then when estrogen goes lower through natural causes or people have hysterectomies and they take the ovaries, then the body doesn't make as many LDL receptors. And you think of an LDL receptor on your liver is like, you know, an off ramp or a catcher's mitt. And for those watching videos, I always show lipoproteins is like a tennis ball. If you don't have enough estrogen, you won't make enough LDL receptors and you won't be able to get them out of your circulation. So then their cholesterol metrics tend to go up when estrogen is low. So what are some ways, this is one of the questions that came in from the Hashi ladies, like what is a good way to manage our cholesterol? First off is a little bit of education. What is cholesterol? You know, it sometimes gets such a bad rap that, you know, high cholesterol is going to cause heart attacks and strokes. And it is associated with, you know, events, but you always have to ask, well, how did the cholesterol get in your arteries in the first place? And so that's where I always start. It always starts with endothelial dysfunction or endothelial glycocalyx dysfunction to be specific. 
So that's a protective coating in your arteries. If that protective coating gets damaged, then the lipoproteins, which are carrying your cholesterol, your triglycerides, which are energy for your cells. And there's different things in there, like a phospholipid, which are building blocks for the cells. There's vitamins inside. So your liver is making these lipoproteins, a lipid protein carrier. Again, it's like a tennis ball carrying the cargo around because cholesterol is a waxy compound. It's not going to float in your liquid blood. So there's kind of three major ways that you can address it. Is it an issue with the liver? Is the liver making too many of these things? And there's blood tests that can point you in that direction. Is it an issue where you don't make enough of the LDL receptors? Sometimes you can look into genetic markers to see, is that likely? And then the third thing is, and some people, it's more of a hyperabsorption issue, is that once the liver would grab this, it's going to put it into your gut and you're supposed to get rid of it. But in 20% of the population, they basically recycle too much of this cholesterol back into the liver system. And so those people probably are not going to do very well on a keto type diet or a high fat diet because they're going to bring a lot of this fat right back to the liver. And then they got to make another lipoprotein to send it around the circuit again. So again, there's blood tests that can kind of point, you know, where's the issue? Is it the liver making too much? Is the liver not clearing it from the blood effectively? Or is it an issue with the intestines where you're just recycling too much? Let's talk about those blood tests. Cause I'm sure the women are like, tell me, what are they? Yeah. Sure, sure. So like on the on the production side of things, yeah, you know, it's going to be your uh, lanthosterol, desmosterol levels, essentially how much cholesterol is the liver making. And there's a couple of companies that will do this, but the most common one is Boston Heart Diagnostics. Um, then there's tests that look at the hyperabsorption, that's uh, beta cytosterol and um I always forget the top of my other head what the other one is, but uh, I'll remember in a moment, but um, it's on a test called the cholesterol balance test. And so either it'd be, it's color coded, which is nice. If it's green, you're optimally absorbing or producing. If it's red, you got a problem. If it's low, well, then maybe you're on too much lipid lowering therapy, or um, it's an issue with your body ability to produce it. Because there are certain people that have rare genetic issues where they just don't produce enough lipoproteins to begin with. But if people are going to only look at one cholesterol metric, because cholesterol is a complicated topic, is look at something called your particle count. It could be your LDL particle count, or a shorter term is looking at apolipoprotein B or ApoB. If you have one of those two numbers, that gives you a much better idea of what your quote cholesterol metrics are than just total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol, and triglyceride. That is not that useful at predicting risk. Is there a time when medication statins are necessary versus maybe approaching what comes up on labs from just a dietary lifestyle change, or maybe it's both together. It's often sometimes a both. And it's also depends on you know, what the arteries are doing with that information because high cholesterol metrics does not automatically equal medications. Um, and stands are a tool. And that's what I tell people is that, you know, use the right tool for the right job. So if the arteries have a lot of endothelial dysfunction, if the arteries are highly inflamed, if there's already evidence that you have soft plaque or hard plaque building up in your carotid arteries in your neck, or your coronary arteries in your heart, then stands might be an option to help kind of mitigate that risk. But if you don't have plaque and you haven't yet done the optimal lifestyle changes, including, you know, getting into a whole food, clean type of diet and whatever that means for you means for you, you know, getting into a routine where you're stimulating your muscles, you know, with resistance training, doing the proper amount of cardio, then you have to kind of say, start there. Then you can kind of figure out if, you know, supplementations can be appropriate for that person. 
or if they're higher risk, then you talk about risk benefits of which medications would work better. But the stands basically work on the production side of things. So if it's an issue with the liver cranking out too much of these cargo ships, that's where you would potentially use that tool. But if it looks like on the cholesterol balance test that it's more an intestine issue, then that's where a zetamide, or used to be known as zetia, that is a better option because that basically closes the gate in the intestine and prevents that cholesterol particle contents coming back to the liver. So you can kind of really laser pinpoint what is a better option for that person. Yeah. How is someone picking up inflammation in the arterial wall? So a couple of ways. Um, one, you can directly visualize it with an ultrasound. So in our office, we do a test called that carotid entomomedial thickness test or CIMT for short. It's an ultrasound of the artery on the side of your neck, no radiation. And it looks at a couple of things. It's going to look at the thickness of the intimal layer, and it's going to look for evidence of plaque. So the intima is the lining below your endothelium. So I said the word endothelial earlier. Basically, it's the protective gel coating in your arteries. It's one cell thick, the endothelium is, and you have 60,000 miles of blood vessels. It's a protective gel coat. And for those that are old enough to remember Teflon, it's like Teflon. If you have the Teflon coating, then these lipoproteins are zipping by your arteries. They're not sticking to the artery wall. Mm. But once that protective coating gets damaged, things start sticking there like Velcro. They get retained under that endothelium in a layer called the intima. If the intima is enlarging, it means that some of these lipoproteins are getting stuck there in part, and then the body's immune system gets activated thinking, hey, bacteria is coming in. The um, monocytes, which are some of the white blood cells, they come in to investigate. They start gobbling the things up. Macrophages, you know, continue to do that. So basically it's like Pac-Man eating up these cholesterol particles, which, you know, these are, you know, basically took a detour. They were supposed to be going, for example, to your muscles to drop off cargo and they got stuck somewhere and they can't get out. And now they're, you know, basically, um, you know, their cargo essentially got trapped in the artery wall and caused a response. Yeah, got detained, you know, illegally docked in the wrong place and can't get away. And, but the immune system's like, we got to take care of this. And when that happens, it will cause inflammation. So, you know, that's normal. You want your body to investigate an infection and part of, you know, uh, immune response, there's swelling, you know, that helps bring in other components of your immune system, different cytokines, interleukins to attack the, the invaders. Well, that'll cause swelling in the intima, which you can measure. And the thicker the intima, the more likely you're going to be adding plaque to the system. Mm. How is how is someone going to pick up a presence of hard or soft plaque? Similar test that that carotid intimal medial thickness test will see if there's soft plaque. It will see if there's some mixed plaque. Um, But back to your question about inflammation, you know, we want inflammation when you have an infection. You want inflammation after you work out. You know, that's what causes the adaptive response. You want inflammation, you know, when you have an injury, but you just don't want chronic inflammation um, because things wear out faster as the immune system is always circulating around these different cytokines and interleukins. That gel coating gets damaged with that material which you can monitor with blood work. There's different inflammatory markers on your blood work that can look at it. So high sensitive CRP is a common one that people will look at, but more vascular specific ones are going to be something called LP PLA2, or it also used to be known as the plaque test, PLAC, myeloperoxidase or MPO for short. Those are two more specific vascular inflammatory markers. So I usually start with that and there's four or five other markers I'll tend to look at on some of these panels. But then after you look at the inflammation, yes, you want to look, do they have soft plaque? Do they have hard plaque? And the hard plaque question is more of a test looking at the coronary arteries 
And the starting point test, I usually recommend people over the age of 40 who have not yet had an event. So you've not already had a heart attack, a stent, bypass surgery, stroke. Those people are high risk. They don't need this test. But the test I'd recommend for people over the age of 40 is a test called a CT coronary calcium scan or CAC score for short. It's basically a low dose CT scan that looks for calcium in the walls of your arteries that line your heart, the coronary arteries. Calcium is supposed to be in your bones. It's not supposed to be building up in the artery walls. Calcium in artery walls is basically a byproduct of your body trying to take care of inflammation processes that were leading to the soft plaques. Eventually, the body will form scar tissue in the artery wall. And at the end point of that scarring, cells will calcify. So it's not the calcium that's the problem in most cases. There's some times where the calcifications will build up big enough that the artery is obstructed, and then people will have chest pain, shortness of breath, you know, exercise intolerance, but often the calcium is a stabilizing factor. You're more concerned about the soft plaque. The soft plaque is a plaque that's kind of like a pimple on the artery wall. And if that pimple ruptures, the blood clots, and that's what gives somebody a heart attack or a stroke. So the calcium score test kind of tells you, are they going to be in the low risk bucket because they don't have calcium in their arteries? So they're less likely to have soft plaque in their arteries. But if they have a calcium score test that's high, then they have soft plaque as well. And so a perfect score, your score would be zero. If your score is over 400, then that is considered a high risk finding. And if your score is over 1000, that's a very high risk finding. If your score is over 1000, there's over a 50-50 shot, you're going to have a severe stenosis in one of your arteries. And you may ultimately end up with a stent or bypass surgery. For someone who does have a familial genetic potential predisposition, you, you mentioned genetic markers. What would be, you know, I think of my husband, granted, he's not a woman with Hashimoto's, but his dad died of a heart attack at 59. And, you know, I'm like, okay, what do we have to do to get him to where he needs to be? So he's living past when, you know, his dad passed away. Sure. And that's basically what my whole practice is built around is finding people's cardiovascular risk. Yeah. I always tell people that by the time you start having symptoms, it's not necessarily too late, but you had a lot of time to intervene and genetics are important to know if you have a strong family history. So if you have a loved one who's having a heart attack in their early fifties, you typically want to start getting screened 10 years before that individual so that you can pick up stuff early. What is early? It's looking at that endothelial function because that's the first sign that there's a problem. If your body can't make nitric oxide, then those lipoproteins are going to potentially start sticking to your arteries, causing that cascade. But the genetic markers that I will start with people are APOE. APOE, how is it a you know, effect on how your body metabolizes cholesterol. It's mostly through how that LDL receptor works, has an effect on nitric oxide production. And APOE also has an effect on how well your body handles certain dietary fats. So people with an APOE4 gene, again, not saying that all of them won't tolerate it, but the APOE4s tend not to do well on 80% of their calories coming from fats. They usually have to kind of cut back on their fat intake, not the zero fat diet, but the high fat diet's tend not to work with them. But how would you know? Test their arteries, look at that cholesterol balance test. It tells you how well they're absorbing fats. So I always start with APOE, the number one genetically inherited lipoprotein that increases the risk of early cardiovascular disease is something called lipoprotein little a or LP little a. Up to 20% of the population has it. What is LPA? It's basically an LDL that has an extra protein on the outside of it. That extra protein is almost like a corkscrew. And that corkscrew 
basically allows it to dig in to the endothelial glycocalyx easier, stick there like Velcro easier. So if it sticks there, it's more likely to get its cargo stuck in the artery wall and kick off that inflammatory cascade. And so one in five people have it. A quick side note is Bob Harper, the guy from The Biggest Loser who had the heart attack in the gym. He's like 51, very, very, right? Yeah, yeah. Super young guy, super yeah. fit. Inside, not so fit. You know, he had LPLA. He ruptured a plaque in his left anterior descending artery, the widowmaker artery. And if it wasn't for a medical student who was in the gym at the same time who helped resuscitate him, he not likely would have made it. So he made it to a cath lab. They stinted him, saved his life. And then afterwards did the, you know, the deep dive. Oh, you have LPLA. That's what was one of the things that put him in the higher risk bucket. But I don't know his whole backstory, but, you know, and I don't know if he ever had a calcium score test, but if he had the calcium score test, it very likely would not have been normal. And it doesn't mean that, you know, you're always going to have an event if it's abnormal, but you at least know you're in that higher risk bucket and you should go looking why that is. But those are the first two things I start with. And then if people have a real strong history, there's some called 9P21. That's the heart attack gene. If you have, you know, more than one copy, it kind of doubles to quadruples your risk of a heart attack. And then for those that are really kind of deep down the rabbit hole, there's a genetic panel from a company called GB Insight that'll look at about 130 different genes that affect your cholesterol metabolism. So in some people, that's the right test to, you know, they've already done the maximal lifestyle changes, nutrition, exercise, you know, they've gone through the rounds of supplements and their, you know, levels are not optimal where they want to be that can pinpoint, okay, which medications are probably going to work better for this person. Yeah. Can we go back to Bob for a second here? Sure. One of the questions that came up, what are the best heart healthy exercise, right? Cause oftentimes we're thinking, okay, we've got to get our steps in or we got to have cardio days. What would you recommend in terms of exercise? Remembering that the woman is, has Hashimoto's and can easily be fatigued. Always kind of think about it. What are your the person's goals? So there's not a one size fits all type of situation, but you know, in broad strokes, I'm always wanting people to do some form of resistance training two to three times a week because you want to have a healthy amount of muscle mass. It's all about mitochondrial health. You know, one of my nicknames sometimes is Mito Mike. There's a whole reason why I talk about this. Your mitochondria are the organelles in your cells that make energy for you. The heart the brain are the two organs that have the most mitochondria for the most part. But the fun fact is the one that has the most is the ovaries because you need a lot more energy to make a new life. But the heart has somewhere between three and 5,000 mitochondria per cell. Your thyroid has a lot of mitochondria. One thought, and we'll get into, I'm sure, you know, what is driving the uptick in Hashimoto's? It's mitochondrial dysfunction in your thyroid. We'll talk about some ways that you can help and potentially test that. But you know, what can you do? to stimulate mitochondrial function, do resistance training so that you build more muscle units. So you have more mitochondria and then the cardiovascular training that somebody who's not a professional athlete, this is not for somebody who's training is doing more zone two type training. This is the low and slow exercise, which teaches your mitochondria to be more efficient at burning fat for energy. Most people have no issue with burning sugar for energy but they have a lot of trouble burning fat for energy. And so you don't necessarily want to be thinking about losing fat per se. You want to be thinking about, you know, optimizing muscle mass, but then teaching the muscles how to partition that fuel is doing zone two training. And what is an example of zone two training? It's for the most part, low and slow. You know, you can do it on a treadmill, an elliptical, a bike, you know, whatever your favorite activity is, but there's multiple metrics that you can kind of look at, but it 
best would be that you had a, you know, maximal stress test or VO2 max to kind of figure out what your heart rate target goals should be. But the rough estimate is that you should still be able to have a conversation at this pace. You should not be breathless. You know, if you're grading it on a scale exertion, 10 out of 10 is you're sprinting for your life. It should be about a five out of 10 intensity. And then a very rough estimate should be about 180 minus your age. That should be about the heart rate goal that you're shooting for. So, you know, how often, you know, more days of the week than not 30 minutes, you know, sessions are a good start point. And let's just get your body much more efficient at processing fats for energy. Yeah. Let's dive into this mitochondrial health <laughs> aspect. Um, if we take it super basic, like I was a five-year-old, can you explain the mitochondria and why they are important? So mitochondria are essential to life. Without mitochondria, we're not here. Now, essentially, there were their own organisms at one point, you know, millions of years ago, and there was a symbiosis. And now basically mitochondria live inside our cells, except your red blood cells. The mitochondria are your engines. They frequently get called the powerhouses of the cell, but they do a lot more than just make energy. But think of them as engines. So what is the job of the mitochondrial engine? They take your foodstuffs. So people online often get into these diet wars, but what does food actually do? Food is information. Food is energy. Unless the food is made in the lab, which it's not really food, your food grew under photosynthesis. So you are eating the plant or you're eating the animal that ate the plant. And then it is the job of your mitochondria basically to decode the information that is in that food. It's oversimplistic, but essentially your mitochondria are breaking down the food back into sunlight. It's breaking it down into electrons and protons. Inside the mitochondria, there's things called respiratory proteins. You think of them almost like hopscotch stepping points. There's five of them. So the food comes in. Fats and carbohydrates come into different steps. We'll skip that part for now. But essentially, the electrons, it has to play hopscotch and jump from one to two to three to four. And then when it gets to five, there's something called the ATPase. It's like a spinning top. The faster the spinning top spins and pumps protons through, which are positive um, you know, hydrogens, that will spin the ATPase. ATP is getting created. ATP is energy. The mitochondria is also going to make CO2. So you breathe carbon dioxide out. It's going to make structured water. And your mitochondria are going to make heat. It's going to make infrared heat. So your engines are what break down the foodstuffs. So if your engines are broken, it doesn't make much sense to keep shoving in really high premium gas organic food. You still should do that. You shouldn't even be eating, you know, process stuff. But this is why some people get confused that like, I went raw vegan, I went strict paleo, I went strict keto, and I didn't get better. It's because you weren't focusing enough on the mitochondrial engines repair. And how do those repair? That's mostly about your light cycles. That's about your sleep. If you're not dialing those in, it almost does not matter what you eat. It does almost does not matter how well you exercise. You're not going to get those benefits because you're overstressing the engines that cannot handle that load. So how do we optimize that piece, right? Because I think a lot of people default to diet exercise, maybe because culturally that's what we've been told. And maybe it feels like the easiest kind of levers that we can pull. So right. what do you recommend? I always start with circadian biology first. You know, your body has a 24 hour cycle. There's two main zeitgeibers. That's a German word for time giver. The primary one is light. 
The second one is nutrition timing. So I don't tend to get into the diet wars online. They kind of are, you know, they're just not fun to be a part of because you have to deal with the person who's sitting in front of you. But a good starting point is that you're designed for the most part to eat during daylight hours. So from sunup to sundown, that's your ideal feeding window. If you want to restrict it down from there, I'm okay with that. We can talk about that face-to-face with certain people. But ideally, you're not eating three to four hours before you go to bed so that your liver and gut get the signal, oh, it must be nighttime. They shut off for the night and then they can process whatever you've been eating throughout the day. If you're eating too late, your body has to break that stuff down. That causes your body temperature to increase because it's thermogenic to break that down. When your temperature is higher, you will not have optimal sleep. You have to kind of cool the body temperature down to get into that deep levels of sleep and repair the damage that's gone on throughout the day. So I always recommend people stop eating three to four hours before their planned bedtime. Then the primary zygiber is light. So we all evolved under full spectrum light. So without the sun, this earth would not exist. All our foodstuffs come from sunlight, you know, or the foods that we're supposed to eat come from sunlight. So light is information and energy as well. So in an ideal day, if you're up before sunrise, you would not be exposed to a bunch of bright artificial light because light basically is a cue to tell your body what time of day it is. So ideally, I'm, you know, I usually get up around 5 a.m. every day. I'm just an early bird at this stage. So I just wear certain glasses if I'm going to have any type of artificial light on, which I do not. And, you know, for those watching video, probably see I have a lot of natural light behind me. This is how I set up my house as well. So I don't have to turn on a bunch of artificial light in the morning. Then I go outside at sunrise. That is the key time that you want to get this light information into your eyes. Your body has a blue light detector in the eyes. It's called melanopsin. There's melanopsin also in your skin, but we'll we'll skip that for another talk. But basically have a blue light detector in your eyes. That's one of the reasons why the sky is blue. Your body's always sampling that color blue in the sky to know what time of day it is. In the morning, it's a different color blue than it is at noon. And it's a different color blue than right when the sun is about to go under the horizon at sunset. So when that light information hits your eyes, your brain knows, oh, morning time. You'll start to secrete cortisol, which alerts you, get you ready for the day, go out and hunt, gather, you know, your sex hormones are getting upregulated. You need infrared, you need UV light. All these things make different hormones in you. You know, UVB is what makes vitamin D out of the cholesterol on your skin. You need cholesterol and UV light to make your thyroid hormones. And so without cholesterol and sunlight, you do not make optimal thyroid hormones. So it's extremely important to get the right amount of light throughout the day. So always recommend people see the sunlight in the morning time to set their clocks. You have a clock in the brain called the supercosmic nucleus that tells the rest of the body what time of day it is. And then once the sun sets, you should really start dialing down on the technology use if you can, because the technology, while it's great that we can communicate with everybody around the world, the, the color of the screens essentially is still set at the same color temperature as solar noon. So if you're looking at your iPhone at nine o'clock at night without your eyes being protected, you're basically telling your brain it's noon. And at noon, you're supposed to be alert. You're supposed to be go hunting and gathering. You're supposed to have high cortisol levels. And if high cortisol, you're really not going to sleep very well. You're going to be ramped up. You want melatonin to be high at that time. So your light really determines how you make your neurotransmitters and hormones. Can you speak to specifically for the Hashimoto's woman, why blue light has the potential to worsen Hashimoto's? Sure. So, I mean, you know, Hashimoto's is now the number one cause of hypothyroidism. It wasn't this way 20 to 30 years ago. 
And yes, some of the foodstuffs have changed in the past 20, 30 years, but the main thing that has changed is our relationship with technology. There's some thoughts that the blue light from our devices is one of the reasons that there's such an uptick in Hashimoto's. We get drawn inside more frequently. We're not in full spectrum light. From sunup to sundown, there's red light, there's infrared light. That red infrared light is anti-inflammatory. This is one of the reasons why sauna therapy, this is one of the reasons why photobiomodulation, red light therapy colloquially can help people with Hashimoto's because it's helping lower inflammation. Blue light by itself is not necessarily bad. You know, again, the sky is blue for a reason, but when it's unbalanced with red, that blue is inflammatory. And so sitting on front of your computer eight hours a day with your thyroid exposed to a computer screen and, you know, spotlighting ring lights, your thyroid is soaking up an artificial sun. That blue light is inflammatory to the thyroid, which as you know, is sitting right below the surface of the skin on your neck. I'm going to put my blue blackers on right now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, do you have a favorite brand of blue black? Do you wear blue blocker glasses, blue light blacker glasses whenever you're on your computer? I do, but that's sort of my brand as well. I mean, I've been doing this since 2017, you know, maximize my circadian rhythms. I did it mostly as a way to figure out how to mitigate jet lag when I was traveling to Asia. And ah. once I kind of figured out the science, how it worked, I really incorporated it heavily in my medical practice. I basically sun up to sundown. If I'm not controlling the light environment, if I'm inside, I wear a color of blue, black, and glasses that will filter out up to about 450 to 465 nanometers. In English, what does that mean? It's typically the lenses are going to be slightly yellow to block that high intensity blue light. So I still want some blue light to get through my eyes so that my brain knows it's daytime, but I don't always wear them if I'm controlling the light environment. But the key time I do wear it is post sunset. So until they met the light bulbs in the late 1800s, all you had at nighttime was fire. You had red light. So red light doesn't interfere with your circadian rhythms. So you're just trying to recreate what you could have had in 1890. So in the evening, I do wear them. I have a darker pair that's red. It makes you look like the Terminator when you wear those ones. Yeah. Those ones block up to 550 nanometer. So those red lenses, they block 100% of blue light. They block 100% of green light. So basically your brain will get the signal. It's midnight. So you can still you know, watch TV. It's going to be very color distorted. You can still read. But for the most part, if you get into that cycle, I can't wear those things for more than 30 to 60 minutes before falling asleep. Now I don't sleep with them on, but if I'm reading something, I get so tired. It's like, go to bed, you know, and every once in a while I fall asleep with them on and then put them down, go bed, go to bed. But the key time is post sunset is really mitigating the bright light environments. And you mentioned brands. There's multiple good brands. Um, you know, people can go to my website. They can follow me if they want to know the ones I'm currently wearing, but I have, I don't know how many pair. I got way more pair of uh, glasses than I think my wife has shoes. So that's hilarious. There's a handful of women inside Thyroid Strong that are night shift workers. My mother was a night shift worker. So she was worked in the hospital as a pharmacist, night shift, retired 10 years ago to this day, cannot go to bed until like 3, 4 a.m. And, you know, a lot of them struggle with being on track with their workouts and how they're eating and the timing of their meals, especially with, you know, the sun. What do you recommend for that population? Because I know there is an increase and in, tell me if I'm wrong in like cardiovascular events or potential in night shift workers. 
Correct. Increased risk of cardiovascular disease, increased risk of breast cancer in women, increased risk of prostate cancer in men. It's because of the circadian rhythm mismatch. You know, in my medical training, you know, I did 10 years of training after college. I did a lot of night shifts in the emergency room, the ICUs. And that's one of the reasons I kind of shifted up my focus in my practice a couple of years ago so that I would not be up in the middle of the night, you know, messing with my own circadian rhythms because, you know, yes, there's always going to be somebody in the hospital to take care of people. But I kind of got the, the realization is that like, if I don't start educating people on this, I'm going to be one of those people that breaks down, gets sick, and then I can't take care of patients anymore. So I have to lead by example. So I actually took the hard case where I basically left a very well-paying job and took the entrepreneurial leap of faith to say, like, I think I can make this work. But in large part was that then I could control my, my circadian rhythms. I don't get exposed to the artificial light. I don't want to get exposed to at the hospitals. Yeah, I can you know, be outside when I want to be outside. I can eat meals when I want to eat meals. But for those that still have to do night shifts, it is challenging. You know, the best case would be try to get off night shifts whenever you can. Or once you start developing what I you know, call like, you know, your mitochondria start failing, you, know, you start developing these autoimmune conditions. You start having cancer. You start having heart disease. Night shift work is not for you. You got to make the decision. It's night shift work or your health at that stage. But if you're not that sick, then you want to try to still mitigate your light environment when you can. So when I was still working in the hospitals, yeah, I would still wear the blue blocking glasses when I was walking around the telemetry floors and people were like, oh, there's, there's crazy Dr. Twyman, you know, looks like Bono or whatever. I'm like, I don't care. Like, I don't want artificial light in my eyes that I don't want there. So, you know, you have to take in your own hands and it's mostly the eyes that are important. So if you can wear the blue blockers at your work and they're not going to freak out about it, I would personally do that. You know, if you can try to eat your meals during daylight hours, do that. But the, the challenge definitely with the night shift workers. And there was times when, you know, I was doing 30 days of night shift and you'd have like only four days off a month on those four days off. I did not try to change my rhythm back. And I know, mm. I don't know exactly when this uh, podcast is going to air, but you know, this weekend is daylight savings time. Yes. You know, basically, you know, if you keep shifting things back and forth from your night shifts to day shifts, you're basically jet lagging yourself every time you do that. So you ideally would still stay on the same cycle, no matter what on your off days, it's not perfect, but it's better than trying to shift back and forth each time. Yeah. Can you speak to how to use photobiomodulation to help with Hashimoto symptoms? Sure. So photobiomodulation, it's a long, fancy word to saying like, how do you use light to change your biology? So it also used to be known as low-level light therapy or low-level laser therapy. So this is where one of the challenges is that it had literally up to 30 different names. So if you go into PubMed or you start Googling like light therapy, it used to be called something different. But if you now look for photobiomodulation or PBM for short, it's been that since I believe at least since 2015, you can look for PBM and Hashimoto's. And you're going to find many articles, you know, peer-reviewed that show how it helps treat Hashimoto's. Now, I can't give you an exact protocol because it always depends on which light device somebody has, but you know, I'm using an example in here. I have a portable one here. So this would be something that you, know, you could put directly in front of your thyroid. You know, it has red and infrared wavelengths of light. So that's basically the colors. So that's the first thing you want to know about a panel is like, what colors does it have? A sort of usual red one is going to be 660 nanometers. The infrared is usually like 810 nanometers, but there's some variation in that. So first, what colors do you have? And then there's something called the irradiance or the power density. Basically, it's the temperature you're cooking a turkey at, essentially. The more irradiance you have, the less time that you're going to need to use the device. 
But most consumer-facing products, there's a lot of marketing buzzwords out there, highest power, all stuff like that. That doesn't mean it's necessarily better. And shorter doesn't necessarily mean better. It's what is the right recipe. So if you really want the right recipe, you have to kind of look into the literature and say like, I want to use photobiomodulation to help my thyroid. You look at the studies and it's going to say, use this wavelength with this irradiance for this amount of time. That's what then you want to try to recreate with whatever panel that you have. So a you know daily habit would be good because you have inflammation every day if you don't treat it. So I don't know how long the, the treatment would be. Depends on your device. It's probably somewhere 10, maybe 15 minutes, maybe shorter, maybe a little bit longer, but one treatment to your thyroid and then try to cut down on the amount of blue light you're getting exposed to at that time. I currently, I don't do this personally right now. I don't have Hashimoto's, but you know, having shirts that you can zip up or scarves or something like that, that kind of block your thyroid. If you have Hashimoto's would not be a bad idea. Yeah. Actually it has to be very close to your skin, right? Like sometimes you see people sitting in front of the belay and they're like two feet away. You're like, no, no, no. It has to be like within a couple inches. Is that right? Correct. Correct. And this is one of the reasons I like this particular type of panel because it's battery powered. There's going to be no EMF because it's DC electric. So you can technically put this directly on your skin. Yeah. And so that is one of the, the issues is that in most of the trials, most of it's done with laser therapy and they're using devices that are direct skin contact because red light will reflect off your skin. So if you see these people blit up and they're all red, over two thirds of the light, it's just hitting their skin and bouncing right off. You need those photons of light to be absorbed into the skin. And the closer you are, the more likely those photons will penetrate. And red light's going to penetrate a couple centimeters. Infrared will penetrate, you know, four to five centimeters. So the closer you are to the skin surface, the better. But for some of these panels, you're going to see them all say like, you got to be six inches away from our panels. Well, that's just kind of a number they pulled out of the air. It's not a magical number, but that's their number to tell people to use because their devices, if they're not grounded well, yeah, we'll be putting out certain amounts of EMFs, electromagnetic frequencies, and that EMF can be inflammatory. You know, so, and some people are very sensitive to EMFs. So they say, well, the further back, it's called the inverse square log, the less radiation you're getting. But the further back, it's going to take more time because a lot of that light is going to be bouncing off of your skin. I'm going to ask some questions that came sure. in from women with Hashimoto's. How do you maintain LDL cholesterol within quote unquote, healthy range while being on an animal protein dominant diet. Test, don't guess. So do the cholesterol balance test. Are you a person that's hyper absorbing that animal based fats back through your intestine? If you're in the red zone on that, then you potentially have to cut back on the amount of it. You might be able to switch up to more polyunsaturated fat or monounsaturated fat. If you're you know not willing to come down on the fat content or now the prescription option would be azetamide or zetia. It helps those people that you know are reabsorbing a lot of that fat. Then you would also want to know your ApoE genotype. That's a test you only have to do one time. If you're an ApoE four, that diet might not work as well for you. The Boston Heart Panel also has a um, fatty acid balance test. It will tell you what your body's currently absorbing from your diet. So it will give you what is your saturated fat absorption, what is your trans fat, which most people should not have trans fat. That's the really like margarine and processed fats. You know, it'll show your PUFAs, your MUFAs and your omega-3 to omega-6 ratio. So it can kind of guide you like, is this a problem for you or not? Again, you know, I take care of a lot of people who are on carnivore keto diets and I always saying like, is this healthy? What are your arteries doing? Do you have normal endothelial function? If you do, this may not be damaging your arteries. Do you have inflammation in your artery with a carotid scan? 
then this diet might not be right for you. Do you have an abnormal calcium score? You know, you'll see some of the influencers out there like, my calcium score is zero, no worries. Well, that just means you're not late to the game. You could still be laying down a lot of plaque, a lot of soft plaque, and you don't know that yet. So you have to go looking for those instances. So there's no one size fits all with this, but if you test your arteries, you'll know if you have a problem or not. You touched very, very briefly on intermittent fasting. And one of the questions that came in was, does intermittent fasting affect cholesterol levels? Not terribly. Um, yeah, I, I don't tend to like the word intermittent fasting because, you know, I tend, tend to think of a fast as over 24 hours. Mm. I like to think of the idea more about time restriction that, you know, you're eating in a circadian rhythm friendly window. Now, can intermittent fasting, if you want to use that term, work for like lowering inflammation, lowering blood sugar? It can, but is it a strategy that you're going to be willing to do long term? That may not be the case. And if your goal is to gain muscle, you got to be careful that you're getting enough protein in that intermittent fasting window. This is going to take it back to more basic, but this was a question that came in. So I want to get it answered. So how is Hashimoto's and cholesterol linked and how to manage when you are already taking medications and are at high risk for heart disease due to genetics? So great question. Um, and it was the way that you would actually diagnose hyperlipidemia or abnormal lipids many years ago before you had this fancy testing was you would do a thyroid panel. And if their thyroid was dysfunctional, they had hypothyroidism, you almost always were going to be assured that they had dyslipidemia or abnormal lipids. The how it's connected is that the thyroid hormone is very important for how the liver is going to make LDL receptors. Again, going back to that, that's the off ramp. So the, you know, the catcher's mist that are grabbing the lipoproteins floating through the blood. So if your thyroid is underactive, you have hypothyroidism because of Hashimoto's, you're not going to make as many LDL receptors. And so you're not going to be able to clear the lipoproteins from the system. So the person asked, you know, if they're already on treatment, I don't know if they meant if they're on treatment for their lipids or they're on treatment for their thyroid, but it's similar cases. Like you're on treatment for your thyroid. Well, then you want to keep from a cardiovascular standpoint, your TSH generally less than two and a half and your free T3, you know, at least in the mid range of whatever the reference range of the lab that you have. And then from your lipoproteins, the ApoB is the main lipoprotein I would look at. You know, your target sort of depends on if you have a lot of plaque or not, but I usually want to see people's number 80 or less. Now, if you have a lot of plaque, you know, under 60, under 50, maybe I'm shooting people that low. I don't know if this is a fact. Women's heart attacks went up 10% in the last two years. Is that true? I don't know if it's that exact fact, but in okay. all comers, it definitely had increased in the past couple of years. Yeah. And it's going to be multifactorial. I know a lot of times people just want to blame that it was, you know, COVID-19 or it was the vaccines. Those probably have a role, but it was also people got more inactive. They got drawn indoors. Obviously, a lot of people had a lot more stress financially, physically, emotionally. So all that played a role in the uptick in cardiovascular disease in the past couple of years. But back to their favorite word we talked about at the beginning, endothelial glycocalyx, the gel yes. coat of your arteries. That coating gets damaged from COVID. And so when that coating gets damaged, then your lipoproteins were more likely to be starting to stick to the arteries. So that's probably partially why the uptick in events in the past couple of years. I've noticed this question come in more frequently is women with Hashimoto's experiencing kind of like a heart palpitation post COVID exposure. Can you speak to that? For sure. That's definitely been reported. Um, there's an uptick in palpitations, you know, for many months after a COVID exposure, part of it's going to be due to the microcirculation being impaired. So, you know, 99% of your blood vessels 
are microscopic. You know, you could potentially take a hundred of those blood vessels and stuff them into the diameter of one of your hairs. So they are very, very small. So if you can't get oxygen nutrients into cells and you can't get waste products out, bad things tend to happen. So your heart, again, is the organ, one of the organs that has the most mitochondria. If you're not getting them enough oxygen, enough nutrients, they're going to complain. They're going to glitch. They're going to have abnormal heart rhythms. So there's also an idea that sometimes it's, uh, you know, COVID will cause, you know, inflammation of the heart muscle itself. There's also actually a thought that, you know, long haul COVID is a sort of autoimmune condition against a certain protein in your heart cells. So it's a autoimmune slash inflammation slash endothelial dysfunction issue that tends to cause this kind of alarm bell. So it's kind of like we have a lot of palpitations. It's the canary in the coal mine that there's still something going on with your cardiovascular system. Is there anything that we haven't talked about that you want to share? Because we've talked about probably way more uh, than... I've had conversations with in terms of heart health and cholesterol. Is there anything maybe specific to the Hashi population? So, no, I think we hit all the, the great topics of, uh, you know, how to, you know, live a long productive life without fear of having a heart attack or stroke. You know, it's test your arteries, you know, look at endothelial function, look at artery thickness, look at markers of inflammation, look at the right lipoproteins, ApoB, make sure you don't have LPLA, and then you know, teaching guys about circadian biology. It's extremely important. You know, if you get your circadian biology right, then all these hard things that you're doing in the gym, all these clean nutrition things you're doing, they're going to tend to work better for you. But specific for the Hashimoto's, again, it's block blue light from hitting your thyroid all day long. You know, blue light is inflammatory. It's excitatory. So cover up your neck, get outside in full spectrum sun. The red will help lower inflammation. If you have access to a photobiomodulation panel, that may help as well. So that's kind of the, the biohacker way to kind of work on Hashimoto's. Yeah, love it. Last question, and this is for me, is the test that you are mentioning, because we talked about a lot of tests, would that be a list you could bring to a traditional cardiologist? And they'd be like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll order that. Many of the blood work, yes. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, Quest Labs is nationwide. They have a subsidiary uh, called Cleveland Heart Lab. So the greatest majority of these tests are available through that. And many times, you know, it's available through insurance coverage um, for the lab work. Uh, some of the other, you know, imaging tests, um, you know, it sort of depends on what city you're in, if they have access to some of them. But, you know, if it's um, out of pocket, you know, a calcium score test, usually it's going to be about 100 to $300. A carotid scan should be somewhere 150 to 250 dollars. So not, you know, crazy amounts of numbers to know what's going on with your arteries. Dr. Twyman, thank you so much. Where can people find you? Well, thank you for the opportunity. It's great to talk to people who are interested in optimizing their health. And if people want to learn more, they can follow me online. I'm on Instagram. Um, I post usually on Mondays. I do IG lives and talk about topics like this. So my handle's Dr. Twyman, D-R-T-W-Y-M-A-N. Website's the same, drtwyman.com. And if people are interested in knowing more about how to use photobiomodulation, I have links to that site to my other videos on that. I'm literally going to go to your site and check out what blue blockers you're going <laughs> to recommend right now. <laughs> yeah.